The following podcast is brought to you by iSelect Fund. iSelect is dedicated to helping investors create a diversified portfolio of venture investments through their financial advisors. Learn how to start your own venture portfolio today by visiting iSelectFund.com. The process of patient-provider communication is broken. Healthcare happens outside the traditional office visits, but providers don't have the time to reach out and manage every patient every day. And patients who need the most support are often those who are the most difficult to manage between visits. Digital technology is finally bridging this gap. On this episode of Innovation Anarchy, we speak with eFarmix CEO Blake Margraff. eFarmix is taking the digital transition of healthcare a step further with new tools that enable effortless remote patient monitoring, helping patients get the information they need faster while reducing workload for providers. So today I have the CEO of eFarmix, Blake. Blake, you want to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Uh, so I'm Blake Margraff. I co-founded eFarmix, the company, just over a year and a half ago uh, after um, just about a year of, uh, of research that led to the formation and validation of the technology that we're based on. But step back for a sec, talk about what eFarmix is kind of at the highest yep. level. Um, eFarmix uh, is uh, a digital health technology that keeps the 20% of most difficult, uh, generally sickest, poorest, most expensive patients in touch with their care teams automatically. So unpacking that just a little bit, turns out there are about two dozen disease states or indications. uh, And for those indications, um, patients uh, can have things go wrong really quickly. And the care team is constantly struggling to keep up with whether each individual patient is okay or not. So eFarmix sends uh, the right question to the right patient at the right time, and if and only if something starts to go wrong, the care team uh, that's watching over that patient is then able to reach out and intervene and uh, and help. So, what do you mean by disease? So let's let's do heart failure. Yeah. Right. Great example. Um, I, I want to avoid a heart failure, but but go ahead. <laughs> on the same page there, uh, heart failure is a, is a chronic condition. Right. It's not as though one day heart's gone. In fact, it's it's about a thirty-year chronic condition, uh, and during that thirty-year period. Over the course of two or three days, a patient can start retaining water and everything can go downhill. Right? Problem is, there are a lot of heart failure patients, similar for diabetes, hypertension, COPD. And it's tough for that nurse sitting behind a computer at that patient's health system to call or uh, uh, somehow interact with that patient every single day. eFarmix automates that interaction. And if the patient starts retaining water or the symptomatology for that patient indicates some kind of decompensation, then that uh, care team is able to jump on it right away, reach out and, uh, and, um, and do anything from titrate medications to help the patient adjust lifestyle um, and uh, avoid a, a readmission or worse. And you're in, in market, so there are people using your product. Yes. So have you saved any lives? So <laughs> technology is in an interesting spot because uh, the FDA regulates any claims around saving lives um, but the care teams uh, uh, that have been, I'd say, empowered mm-hmm. by eFarmix um, have said many times over um, they're making a difference for patients with depression, diabetes, COPD, substance use, asthma, uh, heart failure, um, really across the spectrum. And this must be, are you selling it into the nurses or is it helping them or is it helping the doctor? Or, I mean, we're, what, as you've taken this to market, what have you really learned differently about the market? Definitely. So. Um, there's massive consolidation occurring in the healthcare space. 
hospital systems are acting almost like private equity groups. They're sucking up all of these once independent primary care providers. Mm -hmm. And any good private equity company knows that if you want to uh, stay in the black, you back office all of the stuff that is inefficient when it's distributed. And in the case of healthcare, that is outpatient care management. So you, you, uh, you alluded to this in your introduction. 99% of healthcare happens outside of the office. It happens when people are not face-to-face, -face, right? And finally, healthcare systems are starting to realize that. Uh, and that's exactly, uh, that's exactly where eFarmix fits for those, for those centralized care teams, uh, a room full of nurses that has been tasked with monitoring the highest risk and rising risk patients out there. And so does that then become more or less impersonal? I mean, you're like talking to somebody on a phone instead of meeting with your doctor and, you know, you can keep your doctor and all that kind of stuff. Is it, are the patients happier or, or sure. not? Um, and you, you're, you're, you're also hinting at the, the triple aim of healthcare, right? One of the elements of which um, is, uh, is patient satisfaction. It's not just is the patient healthy and is the health system financially viable. It's uh, are you driving satisfaction as well? Uh, so that's something that eFarmix has baked into both our clinical research and our uh, commercial implementations. Uh, and two statistics to, to shed, some, shed some light on it. Um, patients not only uh, uh, cite um, a feeling of greater provider connection. In fact, we've had patients that come back with quotes like, it feels like the first time my, my, uh, my provider, my nurse, has cared about me in 10 years. Huh. But we're able to use technology to uh, adjust and match the right level of touch the right frequency of messaging to each patient uh, because everybody is different and technology shouldn't fit everybody uniformly. And how did you come to this? You, you're, you've recently graduated from college. You've got, I, I know parts of these teams, you've folded together a really energetic team. You're in the St. Louis area. I mean, why are you not going to med school or, or something like that? <laughs> uh, comes down to uh, as much a philosophy um, as, as anything. Um, when it comes to making a difference in healthcare, there's, you know, until recently, until maybe your generation, the best way to do that was to become hands-on and spend days seeing patients really literally touching people's lives. Um, with technology, uh, I'm convinced uh, that it's possible to impact more people more scalably, um, you know, with uh, really, really with software. Um, going back to uh, how eFarmix started, and I mentioned that we started as a research project. So there are a lot of young folks, similar to myself, who look at healthcare, who read a few blog posts. Maybe they, they go into the, uh, the existing literature um, and say, that's so broken, I can fix it, and come in with that white knight complex yep. and sit down with physicians and say, you should buy this because it's better. Um, and very reasonably, the entire healthcare industry looks at that all at once and says, prove it. And then, you know, my peers say, oh, shoot, that's really hard. I tell you what, help prove it with us. And they say, no, we have neither the time uh, nor the money. And frankly, we don't even have the interest to help you prove that out. You should do it. So, you know, we flipped the script. And now uh, we run the trials that demonstrate versus a controller effective placebo uh, that demonstrate the efficacy and increase in satisfaction and alignment with workflow efficiency and all of that um, so that uh, our customers don't have to. So you're launched initially in terms of helping specific disease classes. And I think when we first met, um, I, it's been a long objective of mine as an investor to think, how do we fix healthcare? And my experience in other markets is you fix it with data. If you look over periods of time, look at data, it teaches you things that you had no, you, you just didn't, didn't, couldn't figure out any other way. 
And when we first met, one of the things that got me excited about what you were doing in eFarmix is it felt like there was a way to finally get access over time to that data and look at things over long periods of time to understand health. You're not doing that now. Is that down the road? Is that, or maybe you are doing it to some degree. What, what do you, it, you're doing your first act. Yes. You've got 20 disease classes. You maybe you'll add 40 or 50, but what's the second act? Sure, so for, for each of these disease classes, um, the, the primary value of eFarmix is that rolling two-week period during which it's unlikely the patient would have any communication with his or her uh, uh, provider, right? It's that, it's that pretty well-identified and recognized blind spot in the healthcare system. At the same time, the benefit, as, as really you're, you're saying, the benefit of tracking that two-week period for you know, months, years on end is you wind up with really solid longitudinal data, and I'd go so far as to call it more than just big data. It's rare data, especially for this population. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not being thrown off of an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. This is the stuff uh, that, uh, uh, well, you know, part, pardon the expression, but folks are literally dying to know um, and is, is costing tens of thousands of dollars per patient per year because it is not known. Um, so the, the, the second act is to figure out how to get even better data from patients, but uh, really we're, we're already there in a big way for the, uh, for the two dozen disease states that we support. And so I think I heard you say this. So it's not what's their pulse, but you're gathering other additional data specific to that disease class in context. Yep. Which then if we start to go back to statistics, we can start doing correlation analysis and start, start, start driving things in a different way. Exactly. And, and this is where um, y you'll hear uh, the, the doctors and nurses that might be listening to this groaning saying, oh, come on, guys, but every patient is different. And that's so true, which is why um, um, I think overreaching is another one of the major sins of, uh, of health technology today. Technology tries to do everything, be everything, solve all of the problems. Um, where instead, uh, the first act, I think it's accurate to say, is acting as the glue between a very uh, well-informed and experienced provider and that patient, right? So before you try and get smart, let's just establish that you can keep patients engaged for a while, add real value to uh, the clinicians that mm -hmm. are trying to help those patients, and then take it a step further, then say, hey, maybe we can do something predictive. So are you... You know, that transition from Act 1 to Act 2, normally what starts to happen is somebody like a clinician would say, my conventional wisdom was X. Now that I'm seeing this data, I've changed my view. Yes. Have you hit that part yet? Is there anything that you've done where you've sort of, a clinician has sort of shifted from that, that reluctance or, and shifted over yet? Or, or, or what do you think that'll look like when it happens? Huh. Um, I think uh, I think it will look like taking in um, uh, it will be more possible um, as there are more streams of data available um, and we're a relatively young company so one of those streams might be claims analysis you know what's actually happening to that patient and how does that align with or not align with um, the data that's being collected mm -hmm. um, and um, um, then uh, as wearables become more prevalent uh, as as you know, aggregated data, even about geographic environments, um, becomes more present. Um, we'll be able to build things more and more. Good example: every time there's um, uh, there's smog in a major city, 
um, the uh, dyspneic events for COPD patients, essentially their exacerbations, mm -hmm. increase, right? And it only happens for some patients. It doesn't necessarily happen for all patients. What if you could, um, what if you could uh, realize that was happening and then alert the provider uh, or alert the patients directly to take action to avoid it? So what would you do? Would you staff up more for more calls or prepare the ER differently for them to come in? Or, I mean, is it, would it go that it far? It might be. So the question you're asking is what is the intervention? Right. Yeah. How how does the how does the smart person in the room um, or the smart technology in the room intervene? And it might be as simple as telling that patient to stay inside that day. Huh. Yeah. Healthcare healthcare is often um, you know death by a thousand cuts. Um, it's not as though something goes catastrophically wrong. It's just over that ninety nine percent of outpatient time, the bad stuff builds up, and there aren't enough uh, incidents or opportunities to correct, and uh, things go wrong and dollars are lost. And you can. I guess technically do that correlation absolutely down the road and have it tease it out of the data and realize that it's there correct again you need the rare data in order to make that possible right so you know so you've got a whole bunch of customers out there that are all running around with iPhones and and uh, and watches with Fitbits giving answers or or I mean is it are those the people here that we're trying to help? I uh, I'd, I'd love to help them. They just don't need that much help in the first place. Um, so, you know, we're we're focusing on as a company that uh, that twenty percent of really tough um, patients. There was a great review board article that came out recently um, showing what a lot of providers have intuited. Uh, just helping the toughest five percent isn't enough, even though that five percent accounts for about fifty percent of the cost, right? And if you instead focus on so the, say that again, five percent of the patients account for 50 percent percent of the health of the costs. national health care spend just five percent it's uh it's the pareto principle on steroids right and so that's the people who have copd and chronic heart heart problems that are all being could be treated down the road by your technology exactly and who are and who are uncontrolled right there in that high and rising risk category because we've been we've become really good as a society at managing chronic conditions if you know what's happening all the time. Problem is, this is the real world. You don't know what's happening all the time. Um, but uh, you, you bring up one of the major challenges of bringing digital health to uh, what would be you know, called maybe a, 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 an unsexy user base, right? These aren't the folks who are early adopters who have three wearables on each arm and who are, uh, you know, who are really intrigued by the concept of quantifying themselves. These are the folks who are, who are working hard just to live from day to day and maybe their own healthcare isn't and potentially shouldn't be a priority, right? Um, which means that uh, a technology developed and designed for those people has to meet them where they are, has to meet them where they are technologically and also in terms of health literacy. Um, so the first step is matching them with technology that fits their disease state or disease states, right? If they have diabetes, let's meet them there. If they have heart failure, let's meet them there. If they have um, an issue with substance use, let's meet them there. Let's not just throw a portal at them and hope that they reach out. Mm -hmm. The next step is using the technological media that makes sense for them. Generally, that's text messages and phone calls. In fact, eFarmix has been able to reach um, extremely high engagement rates, more than an order of magnitude uh, uh, greater than um, the next best healthcare applications that hospitals use, simply because um, we pair uh, technology with which patients are familiar with algorithms that tailor that technology to each patient individually. So you, in a sense, know for a COPD patient what, how to and if that patient is a text message user, you know the way to communicate proper COPD 
or better COPD treatment to that patient given that they're a text message user versus a iPhone user? Sure, sure. Or versus like a web user or some, in a sense. Yeah, and, and, and every, you know, for even, even one uh, patient with COPD to the next, um, there, there are going to be a different stages in their disease, different levels of control, different levels of interest in terms of engaging with their care. Um, so there are, there are a bunch of levers to pull, a bunch of, a bunch of parameters that you have to identify to, to match that patient. So if we sort of look at the cost of healthcare going out, and you know, so often we talk about healthcare and say, well, this is really, you know, cost is no limit, cost is gonna go up, people need to be treated, you know, we need to come up with new cancer therapies and things because there are all these challenges. But meanwhile, you're saying, hey, with some fairly simple technology properly deployed, we can make it so that the 5% that have 50% of the cost are treated more effectively. Which, which of those two paths do you think reduces the cost of healthcare and improves survivability faster? So there was, uh, there was a great back of the envelope uh, calculation that showed that for uh, the top 1% or 2% of utilizers in the healthcare system, you could give them an Uber and a dedicated on-site nurse and whenever something went wrong, put them in the Uber and take them to and from that nurse, and that would save money versus the existing care pathway of admitting them to the emergency room, getting them back out, hoping they don't come back, um, which is pretty crazy, right? It gives you a sense of where the line for positive return on investment is in healthcare solutions. Um, I think, I think uh, it's not a simple answer. Instead, uh, it's all about matching um, the solutions, many of which are gonna be technology-based, with the, um, um, different strata of risk and cost for a patient population. So does that mean it's really hard? Or are we gonna be bringing out tools or are entrepreneurs gonna be stepping in? Can entrepreneurs step into this market controlled by doctors and, and learn what you've learned in terms of, hey, we can bring innovation into this market. Here are the, here's the trick to do it. And, and get doctors to adopt more readily? Sure, um, yes. And uh, looking at another macro trend in the healthcare, which is the shift away from fee-for-service to uh, value-based care, um, it's, it's no longer uh, about convincing a single doctor that something is good for his or her patient, right? Think back to the days of, of, of pharma uh, and, and the Sunshine Act and you know this whole dynamic of trying to get physicians to do something for their patients. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about getting chief financial officers to make you know, enterprise level uh, purchasing decisions that will have ramifications for the next five years for their new uh, uh, relationships with uh, self-insured employers. So I guess in a simple version, it's a little bit, and I say this with care because <laughs> I, I'm beginning to learn how much I don't know, it's a little bit naive to think that you can come into healthcare, help a doctor do something a little bit better and actually have that be uh, sustainable and viable as a business. And why is that? Is it doctors, doctors are no longer uh, just by themselves um, the only points of influence and impact in healthcare. Now it's, now it's a much larger machine. Being the CFO and being the other, the institutional Correct. momentum and the regular, and the That's sort right. of, here's how we pay for things. And so here's an interesting analogy that might resonate with folks who are looking to get into the, the, the digital health startup side of things. 
there's B2B, you know, business to business sales and business model, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's B2C, business to consumer. Maybe there's something in the middle that ought to be called B2D, you know, business to doctor, right? It's, it's definitely not true B2B. The purchasing decisions are not truly financially rational if you're going to primary care provider offices out there in the, uh, in the middle of town. Um, but it's also different from going directly to the patient. It's almost a, a miniature channel partnership. And just to cut to the chase and, and give my opinion, I think that's not the most effective way to drive uh, large-scale and sustainable change in, uh, in healthcare. So we've, we've gone through a period here over the last call it seven years with ACA coming in yep and and that has had positive and negative effects and if you sort of put your your objective hat on now and and sort of looked at at you've lift the hood up a little bit you've seen how data can start to improve healthcare. can you lift the hood a little bit further and 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 sort of suggest how you might fiddle with healthcare going forward a little bit to make it so that it's easier to adopt this type of technology, reduce cost, improve the doctor's job, make, sort of align all the negatives into positives? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, in other words, what's the, what's the magic key to making money in the healthcare industry? Well, and even if it's incremental, uh, yep. you, so, I mean, just going back, sure. back, you grew up yep. in Silicon Valley. Right. What, I mean, your your dad was an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. What was your first? You were. What's the story behind you? You being involved in one of his early ventures, weren't you? The the kid in uh, the voice and um. Oh yeah. What tell back that in, story back in the back in the leapfrog days. So, so uh, your your first product, your first involvement in product development was on leapfrog. In what what particular way? Little little did I know the uh, the the voice of the littlest frog on, yeah. on, the, <laughs> on leapfrog, which is which is kind of creepy, right? I can I can say to a lot of my peers, you heard me in your house when you were growing <laughs> up. And, uh, so, you you've had the advantage of sort of seeing that ecosystem really explode, even in your lifetime. It's, sure, it's grown a lot, but but explode in a particular way, and I, I suspect that you've absorbed a certain amount of the sort of ecosystem there in terms of how you right. how you think through tough problems. Mm -hmm. Now apply that to healthcare, and, and in a polite way, wh what's your thought from taking that sort of lesson that you can sort of say, yeah, doctors, I know you're a little frustrated about this, but think about it this way. Or nurses, I know you're a little frustrated about this, think about it this way, and then is there a way to sort of slide that into healthcare in a, in a different way? Maybe a way to approach answering that is identifying some of the common objections that uh, different decision makers and users in healthcare have, especially to technology, right? And this has been a, a, a clash between, you know, established and maybe even entrenched industries and n new um, um, technologies for a long time, right? It's yep. not unique just to healthcare. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, it boils down to, am I comfortable using it? It's almost a, a qualitative and emotional reaction uh, paired with, um, does it make financial sense? Does this new solution make financial sense um, for, for my organization to use? Um, and the answer for a lot of doctors, uh, a lot of uh, care providers as, as wholes, and even their patients to both of those until pretty recently has been no, um, which is, I think, why why uh, adoption has been so relatively slow. Is that no because you don't understand all the product requirements, or is that no because 
hey, we've done it this way for a really, really long time, and I don't know how to do it any other way. It's, it's shifting from, hey, we've done it this way for a long time, to, hey, you don't understand the product requirements, which is actually a great thing, because it means the folks that do learn, that take the time to empathize with and understand those product requirements, might have a really big opportunity. So again, credit where it's due. Physicians, um, um, more than just about any other profession, have to keep learning, right? Mm -hmm. That continue, continuing medical education as an industry even is massive, right? You have to, you have to keep uh, self-teaching or sort of putting yourself in an environment where you will absorb new information and apply that for the, for the better care of your patients, right? Um, and uh, I think technology is finally becoming part of that, part of that new learning. So taking this a little bit into the other part of where we invest is in therapeutics mm -hmm. and also sort of stressing the sort of longitudinal data, understanding patients over time. Are you seeing an opportunity, if we, if we look at like phase two to phase three drug trials, there's about a 60% failure rate, often because of uh, a lack of understanding about po uh, patient population and not being able to discern the data. There's a whole bunch of cool stuff going on with RNA and, and such. Are you seeing yet any opportunity to sort of work your way up into understanding the standards of care beyond? It sounds like in phase one, you're improving standards of care from sort of a workflow standpoint. Here are the, the, the basic things that are understood about how to treat COPD or diabetes, and we're gonna make sure it's executed consistently day in, day out. Do you see an opportunity in later phases to be leveraging that data to go upstream into the development of new drug technology? Or is it gonna be yet more about improving the sort of front end care and quality and contact with the customer? <laughs> so here's a cool analogy um, to, to, to summarize maybe what you're thinking about. Uh, what if digital health is to longitudinal care management what genetic al analysis is to yeah. personalized medicine uh, in terms of uh, chemical therapeutics. I think that's definitely accurate. Um, and then there's the potential intersection or collision of, of digital health and longitudinal monitoring and data collection with, uh, with uh, you know, underlying attributes of patients, genetics, and, and proteomics. To start to, to and do you and see an opportunity up. at some point as people talk about big data coming in yeah, and, yeah. and robots and I mean, are all the doc is is the industry going to consolidate into a decision tree? <laughs> the the most successful um, recent changes in emergency room medicine have resulted from decision trees. Um, you know, this patient comes in with certain symptomatology. Uh, let's let's check certain boxes or not check others, and follow down to the decision of whether to admit them, to watch them for a few hours, or to kick them out and say, "Hey, you're not you're unlikely to uh, need to stay here right now, both financially and and medically." Um, so absolutely, uh, and 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 that decision tree is unlikely to ever be the same for uh, one person to the next, because part of the benefit of collecting data over the long term is you can feed that into models that you and I could never even wrap our minds around. Yeah. Uh, but that uh, machine. And then re-reduce it down and, and figure it out. Bam, bam. So right. So artificial again. There's this there's this this new buzz phrase in medicine. It's shifting the. Uh, uh, big data is kind of dying as a, as a buzz phrase, yep. right? And now it's all about artificial intelligence. Um, and uh, Can you sue a, a bot for malpractice? Well, <laughs> no, but you can definitely sue somebody for creating it or for using it, right? Yes, I guess that's right. Uh, and um, and uh, the, the question is not, 
you know, will artificial intelligence be applied? It's who's going to apply it correctly first and in what ways will that be? And I think at first it's not going to be purely clinical. It's going to be in terms of keeping patients engaged for a long time, keeping their care teams active and focused on the right patients for a long time. In fact, um, I'd say that artificial intelligence is more likely to drive uh, uh, the secondary uh, components of, of uh, long-term patient monitoring than it is the actual decisions. As we look at investing through iSelect, we focus sort of in two camps. Um, one is down the therapeutic path, which is a very sort of classical, you know, phase one, phase two, and it's a very sort of known deterministic model, and you're going to win or you're going to lose, very binary outcome. The other is what we call the gray market, and the gray market is sort of the cash pay market. It is, I know I need to get an MRI. I just want to go find a place to go get the MRI and have it sent to my doctor, and why, why do I have to go through networks and everything, or, hmm. or it's go to urgent care. Right and the service level is higher and, and it works out for me in a more effective way. Sure. And so one of the things we're intrigued about and one of the conversations we're having with folks in Washington is in certain parts of these markets, can we make it easier to do um, a deliver service in a way that a patient would be willing to pay cash? So my model on this, and specifically in the disease classes of diabetes, high blood pressure, perhaps overweight, a couple of the disease classes. And my model on this is I was down in Mexico several years ago when diabetes is really high, high very, very high precedence of diabetes in Mexico when a MIT classmate was running the McDonald's of diabetes clinics. Hmm. So I, I may have these numbers wrong, but the hospitals were paying $1,500 a month to take care and treat patients for diabetes in a very particular way. It wasn't working very well. And he came in and he said, how do you do it? And they explained how they treat the patient. And then he set about putting a whole process together. I, I sort, of, sort of the two all beef patty special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. So he sort of figured out very specifically, very, very, very tight decision tree. And then he staffed his clinics with three doctors and 3,000 people who weren't even nurses right. to, to precisely deliver sure. health care. And then he charged the hospitals $25 a patient per month yep. and made money. Right. Um, that's a pretty radical shift. It's, it's, the, it's the same exact shift as is occurring in health systems in the states with those centralized care teams. It's let's help, uh, and in the states it's medical professionals, right? It's, it's, it's definitely people who have training and generally are, are registered nurses or NPs. And in his case, he had three doctors in the background Understood. that monitored everything that was going right. on. Same in, same in the systems. Had little, little tests along the way to make sure they were paying attention to, right. oh, this could go wrong. And yep. then 5% of the patients would fall into a, right. into a very you know, the ought to see a doctor, mm -hmm. um, but go on with your... It's, uh, it's the phrase that, um, that I love, uh, that one of my, my mentors, the CMO of a hospital uses, is, is helping um, his staff operating, operate at the top of their respective licenses. So how do you take somebody who's trained, and in, at least in, in this country, who's legally able to provide up to a certain level of care, and make sure that person does that? 
And if there's more administrative... And that they're like, fully staffed at all times. So if it's an eight-hour day and sure. they're perfect at diabetes and that they're seeing that patient right. that they're perfect at diabetes with right. and they're not dealing with any intake or anything, they just sort of Ah, And that's where technology up. can take something that's linear and make it exponential. Because rather than just having, you know, hiring one more person and adding 10 patients, another person adding 10 more patients, technology can potentially uh, increase the capacity by 20, 30, 40, 50% for uh, for um, that group of folks who has been tasked with watching over, um, you know, watching out for the uh, the population with chronic conditions. So I guess the analogy I would have here is when they first started really doing the cataracts factories, where you're familiar with this? Maybe you're not. You look like you don't. So it, there was a period, and it was a doctor, I think, nearby here that did it over in Illinois. He realized he was spending a lot of time waiting for patients to show up. And he was really good at doing cataract surgery. So he said, well, why don't I send a bus to go pick him up? Yep. <laughs> and then he said, um, you know, it takes a certain amount of time to get the patient ready, so I'm going to create eight suites. And then I – and so the buses would show up, and they'd line them up for the suites, and they'd show up, and somebody would get them there. And then he would do surgery in, I guess, I don't know, cataract surgery. Let's say it takes 15 minutes or something. He would spend – 15 minutes doing a surgery in one room, and then he'd walk to the next room, do 15 minutes of surgery. And so all of a sudden, he took his capacity and did whatever, did 30 surgeries a day when he was before doing 10. Yep. And uh, he could use lower-cost resources to go sure. get people in the room instead of him spending his medical degree to go get it. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, where are – do you – is that an offensive strategy in the You tell me. You were the or? one that asked in the beginning of this discussion whether, uh, whether technology uh, is making things less personal. I mean, that sounds just about as transactional and, uh, you know, you know, wham-bam as you can get in medicine. But you also are saying that your patients, because they're getting care and it sounds like somebody's listening to them. Yep that their satisfaction rate it's is a, going up dramatically. It's a matter of perception, and my guess is the more people that walked in with cataracts and walked out seeing clearly uh, that that doctor saw, the, the, the happier he was making his hometown, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's totally fair game. And so that you can deliver higher quality service with technology at a lower cost. Yep. And that the that the patient outcome is both higher in terms of satisfaction and higher in terms of survival rate or right. treatment or, or, or you know, the critical things. Like I, I, I live longer. I, I have a happier life. I have all those different things. That's right. So that all the vectors are aligned. So yep. we walk into the healthcare conversation thinking that you can't improve quality, cost, and availability. Right. And through technology, we come out the other side. Saying we can improve all three and we can improve by how three. much we're going to improve each, each parameter. And so are we on the forefront of Moore's Law in healthcare cost? Call it, uh, uh, call it William's Law. I think it's going to be a little bit less aggressive. <laughs> Um, but uh, Bob Metcalf's a friend, so we may have to call it Metcalf's law. Uh, <laughs> so we'll call it, or we'll call it Blake's law. <laughs> right, you know, and that's it's again, um, medicine is a is a uniquely um, artistic science. Uh, I think it's it's fair to describe, and that's reflected in technology. It's a lot of trial and error to get something right. 
um, which is you know one of the one of the biggest barriers to entry. But once you do get something right, the dollars are absolutely there. Well, and that doctor doing cataract surgery was practicing the science. Right. I mean, he was dealing. He didn't need to. Being a good doctor who can manage people coming in on a bus is absolutely not exactly. And how many of his predecessors, uh, uh, you know, messed up the cataract surgery as it was first being developed, right well, before it fair. became a science? And I think if you do it three times a day, maybe you would get better. But sure. I, I don't know. I mean, that's a whole nother. I'm not a cataract surgeon, so I'm not for sure. Yep. But it's been the case, I think, as we've looked at every other industry. As, as investors, and we look at all industries, we look for patterns. Right. And and I was intrigued by this fellow in, I in love Mexico. That. I love that. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not sure this gets into 5% of the population, 50% of the cost, but it does strike me that if you address high blood pressure, a diabetes, cholesterol, and overweight, mm -hmm. you're gonna, and you figure out how to lower the cost of delivering that, yep. you're gonna take a lot of cost out of healthcare. Yep. And then we can spend more money on extreme care when necessary, when somebody needs to get a specialized immunotherapy for geoblastoma. Absolutely. Uh, because we have the freedom to do that because we've, we've sort of addressed the rest of the healthcare yep. cost. Yep. Well, very interesting. Um, Blake, thank you for coming. My pleasure. Uh, we're gonna have this conversation again. I, I've been involved in enough technology to have seen this episode before mm -hmm. that when we come back to this a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, I believe and I want to understand, and I, I think everybody wants to understand, is what signals we're starting to see that are going to sort of shift the cost curve. Right. Um, so thanks for showing this to us. Uh, and please come back again. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovation Anarchy. To subscribe, go to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for more conversations about venture, innovation, and entrepreneurship.